Welcome to Next in Q, the podcast for contact center and customer experience professionals. Next in Q is brought to you by Happy Two, your service team's personal coach, giving them the process, resources, and insights to deliver the perfect customer experience over the phone. Learn more at happitu.com. Now, here's your host, Rob Dwyer. Welcome to another episode of Next in Q. Today, I am joined by author and security expert, Matt Smallman. Matt, welcome to the show. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Nice. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry no, I didn't manage to get any Lego in the background for you. Uh, it's okay. That is okay. You have a, a great background. What you've got going on is this blue light, which is pretty fantastic. And I am a little jealous of it right now. You were nice enough. Uh, gosh, I don't know. It's been a couple months now to send me a copy of your book, which I think people can see in the background. I've got it uh, really close here. Unlock your call center. And I thought I knew what this book was going to be about. And then I read it and I was like, that is not what I thought it was going to be about. But it is a fascinating read. And it's the reason that I wanted to have you on the show so that we could talk about some of the things that are in that book. But before we get into that, I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about your pre-contact center days, which I find incredibly fascinating as well, because you were in the military, right? Yeah, that's right. So um, I think we, this was before the turn, before the turn of the century, uh, when we're all living in a very different world, um, and I, it, one one of the things to do to kind of see see the world and uh, have a bit of impact was to 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 join the military. So I joined the British Army uh, just before two thousand, the year two thousand, uh, and um, they sent me to some very exciting places like South Georgia and the Falkland Islands. Exciting is probably not the right word, but um, interesting <laughs> is probably a, probably a better word. I spent some time with the the Royal Navy cruising around the the, the Pacific and the Caribbean, and uh, uh, in fact, was uh, spent some time in, in the U.S. with the Royal Navy as well. So I had some fascinating time. And then, then they said, "Well, we'd like to send you to university." So okay, you can pay me to go to university. That, I will happily do that. Uh, but when, when I returned to the to the army um, after university, it literally was uh, like the, the the time I finished my kind of uh, officer training, uh, well, reviewed officer training was uh, pretty much nine eleven. So uh, the world changed pretty quickly after that. Um, I was a uh, a junior officer in the Corps of Royal Engineers, which in the in the British Army is the effectively the um, the civil engineering unit, uh, but it also looks after bomb disposal and counterterrorism search and, and other things like that. So I was, I found myself in Kabul, um, kind of a couple of months after the the fall of Kabul, uh, rebuilding schools and building checkpoints and setting up the infrastructure for their first election. So it was an, an amazing uh, kind of uh, set of experiences. Um, and then things turned a bit, little bit different, and, and I found myself gravitating towards. Um, um, EOD and counter IED uh, operations and eventually into running and leading and training search teams. So if you think about the kind of the movie of, um, I forgot what the, the guy, the, the, there's a very, there's a, there's a movie, isn't there, for uh, of a, a, an American counter IED specialist based in Baghdad uh, who does that kind of long, lonely yes. uh, walk. I've forgotten the name of it now. It's really annoying. Um, if you think about that guy, yeah. So the, like it, 
Iraq's a vast country. Someone has to find where the device, where the kind of the within 10, 15 meters of the device is in order for that guy to go and do his long, lonely walk. And that, that was basically my job. My job was to run search teams uh, and plan operations where we would look at large swathes of the country uh, or of cities and figure out where um, devices were likely to be. And then we'd deploy teams on the ground with some specialist equipment to figure out <clears throat> if they were there or not. And when we were pretty confident there was one there, we'd send in the sending the heroes with the, the bomb suits and the robots to take care of it. So not necessarily uh, all of the, the glory that those other guys get, but a really important job nonetheless. And, it, and it's, what's really interesting about it is that like, if you look, and, and, and part of the thing I found fascinating was everything we saw develop in um, Iraq and Afghanistan basically followed the same playbook that we'd seen in, um, in previous conflicts, but just a lot faster. So all of the iterations, the terrorist threat and our countermeasures to them all, all kind of followed the same kind of patterns. And whilst the military had kind of encoded these as drills in places like Northern Ireland, where there are hedgerows, you have to go to the other side of the hedgerow, but there's no hedgerow in Southern Iraq. So you have to think differently about it, but the same principles apply. Uh, and part of my job was to kind of extrapolate what those principles are from the drills and then reapply them to new uh, environments, new operating theatres and ensure the teams we spent sent there um, did that. So, in fact, my first book uh, is uh, a very unexciting uh, uh, MOD pamphlet six. Uh, Military Engineering Volume 2, Pamphlet 6 Alpha, uh, Counter-Terrorist, Counter-IED Search Operations, brackets intermediate. Uh, so not the most thrilling of read and still classified. So I'm afraid it's not available on Amazon. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that was my first, first experience of, of authorship. Um, but as, as you can guess, that's, that's not where I've remained. And uh, it quickly became clear that... Well, quickly is the wrong word, but that, um, that, that there's probably other things that I want to do to do in my life. And I haven't done probably my, my fair share of service. Uh, I found myself in financial services uh, and pretty quickly uh, in, into the contact center customer experience space, which is where this kind of the main bit of this story kind of starts. But there's lots of parallels backwards and forwards. I'm sure we'll touch on. Yeah, absolutely. So I never served but my brother was in the air force and has since moved into the private sector and we've talked uh, multiple times about the differences between the military and the private sector i'm interested to hear from you what that transition was like for you and what you saw as the 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 best parts of that transition and maybe the, the most challenging parts of that transition. I, I, I consider myself very lucky. Like uh, a lot of people have, have do have challenges with these situations depending on their background and experience. So, so I, I did a business degree at university. So I had a fair degree of um, understanding of, of business as it were before, before leaving. And I, 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 um, I was very fortunate to, um, be offered a role uh, in, in a firm, uh, Barclays, in fact, in the UK, which um, which is quite an active veteran recruiter. Uh, and I was given a role probably that I didn't necessarily have the set of experiences for, but I had the kind of the, the aptitude for. So um, I found myself in a place called the Isle of Man, which I'm not sure many of our uh, listeners and watchers will, will have known, which is actually a small crown dependency that sits off the, off, um, off the English coast, somewhere near, somewhere kind of uh, west, yeah, west of Liverpool uh, and east of Belfast in Northern Ireland. So it's little islands about 30 miles from north to south, about eight miles across. 
Uh, and it's actually an offshore banking hub, not quite as glamorous as the Cayman Islands or Geneva or some of those other places, but it is an offshore banking hub. And I found myself uh, working there. Um, so I think I was pretty lucky in my in my transition. I know, I know others 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 definitely aren't haven't been as lucky. And I think it also depends on the kind of where we are in the economic cycle at, at that time as well. So yeah, I, I think I was pretty lucky. Um, some things pretty diff different to uh, I think I remember in my first performance appraisal i think i was i was told that i wasn't playing enough uh, attention to the control environment which is the kind of the risk management framework of making sure that everything was done properly and i, was, I my kind of my immediate retort was kind of like no one's going to die if i get this wrong are they so it was like <laughs> I, I think i was probably I, I think probably not just my military experience but that kind of the specific military experience i had um taught me an awful lot about risk management and um mm -hmm obviously in a very different context uh, where lives are at stake instead of money. But um, that, that certainly paid, uh, paid me in good stead um, in, in that arena, even though I didn't necessarily calibrate the two very well to start with. I've got better at that since. So one of the things that I thought was most striking about reading your book, and I should preface this and say you come at this book uh, it's, it's about customer experience. It really is focused on customer experience, but it is looking at things, I think, in a way that a lot of us ignore or aren't paying enough attention to. And that is the, the security, the, the customer authentication side of things. And you say that part of the problem with customer experience is that a lot of agents are operating out of a position of fear from the very beginning of the call. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's worth worth decomposing this 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 a couple of couple of steps first. So um yeah like there are a lot of great authors and a lot of people out there with uh, a ton of customer experience knowledge and uh recipes and things that you can do to improve your customer experience. The thing that's always struck me and, and I found a particular kind of resonance with is that regard, like pretty much regardless of um, what it is you're doing, what kind of industry you're in, what vertical you're in, uh, what's, what kind of size of company, there's always this thing called the security process or the ID&V process or DPA process or wh whatever the people are going to call it. There's always this process. And um, for, for right or wrong, this process has evolved over time. It's evolved from a world where kind of retailers knew their customers and bankers knew their customers by face. And there wasn't really a need for identification or authentication to where we built bigger and bigger firms where people didn't know each other. So we needed reference numbers and then fraudsters started to figure out that they could get in there. So firms reacted by Im implementing security processes. And then we started to deliver service remotely and, and during COVID obviously even more and more service remotely. So we evolved these um, security processes using the best tools that were available to us um, at the time. And to some extent, like it's just almost accepted as the status quo. Um, that we have these processes that people are like ask their mother's maiden name and their social security number. And it's like a security, I call it security theater. I mean, I think it's verging on fast, to be honest, like where we are, um, where we think that these processes are adding some level of security, when in reality, they're adding no security. They are um, 
frustrating and time consuming to, to use because people have to remember information. Um, and they're also distracting from the core purpose of the, the, the interaction that's taking place. People, customers don't call you or email you or write to you or go to your website to prove that they are who they claim to be. They do it <laughs> to have a problem solved or to get on with something. Um, but I think, uh, and, and most of us in the industry, good, like we, we've had these processes, they have evolved and they're kind of better the devil, you know, no one really wants to play with them because um, there's a risk that like, if I make the change that lets the fraudster in, am I responsible for it? Um, and then the final bit of that, which is where leading onto that kind of agents and fear experience is that we, we put far too much stay in, in our agents to execute these processes. Like we'd love people to do it in our IVRs and go off to self-service, but when all else fails, they'll drop out to an agent. And nine times out of 10 organizations rely on some degree of agent discretion to tick the box or not tick the box. Um, and obviously pe people join us working customer service and call centers and contact centers, not because they want to deny people service, but because they want to help people. But all too often our processes are set up such that they feel a real fear for doing the right thing. Like they listen, and I, I've listened to thousands of these calls where you can hear that it is the real customer when the agent knows it is the real customer, but for some reason they can't remember or figure out the mental gymnastics of the seventh letter of their password. Uh, right. so, so they're denied service or put to some even more horrific process or told they have to turn up at the branch. Um, because the agent is scared, the agent is following the process and they're, they're, fear, they're fearful of what happens if they don't follow that process. And all of that was valid, yeah. Uh, even five, five, 10 years ago, all of that was valid. But the, the reality is now that the technology exists to get all of that out of the way. Um, and whilst a few large financial services organizations have adopted some of that technology and implemented it sometimes in slightly cat-handed ways, um, the technology does exist. And the rest of us, your, your uh, credit union, your insurer, your utility provider, your telco should be adopting these processes as well because they get the security process out of the way. They make it easier for that human-to-human -human interaction between agents and customers to take place. They make it easier for the customer to solve the problem. And ultimately, they're probably they're almost certainly more efficient. They enable more higher levels of self-service, and they take a whole host of stuff away from that agent conversation. And that's just kind of like on the superficial transaction level. But they also change the nature of those conversations between, between agents and organizations. So you can hear what the customer's really saying. You can solve the unstated problem as opposed to what they just stated as they came in on the call. You can go above and beyond that and exceed their expectations. Like all those other, and, I, and I'm not gonna tell you how to do all that, those other great CX writers will tell you all that bit, but my, my kind of premise is unless we get that first bit right, then we, we haven't really earned the right to do all those lovely, extra, wonderful things that we might want to do later. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's where, I, where I come back to this. And, and I think the, to, to your point, that kind of agent experience of the security process, like I, I remember my first job was like, my, my team was based on a contact center floor and I just listened to like, we're doing this 40, 50 times a day, this tedious, yeah. painless, painful process. And in many ways they were gaming the process as much as the customers were gaming it. I remember one organization I worked in, um, you had, to, you had two sets of questions you had to choose from, uh, and you were supposed to, you're supposed to randomize them, but no one ever did randomize them. Every agent used exactly the same questions because they were the ones over time that they'd learned that customers were most likely to get right, mm -hmm. which conveniently were also the ones that fraudsters are most likely to get right. 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 So it, it's, it, it's, it's just, a, it, in some cases, it's just a farce. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, 
there is a level of cognitive load that we expect customers to just go through that it can be really challenging and we just feel like oh well you should do this and and i remember when i was an agent that uh, we would have pin protected accounts so i supported uh, one of the large telecoms here in in the united states and so if an account was protected by a pin and it wasn't a four digit pin it was longer than that of course and so you'd get someone and you'd have to authenticate them and and if they got the pin wrong you're like no that's not it i'm sorry and then you're just waiting like okay how many shots do i give them do i give them two opportunity because that wasn't that wasn't laid out as this is the process it's just they need to provide you with this pin and so it's like okay well that's not it and then right then there might be some digging and to your point like you know you're talking to the right person and they're like is it the one that starts with a four you're like yeah yeah it's the one that starts with a four so right that is not really secure and it just starts off this interaction in a horrible way where they they may have even forgotten what they want to call about because we've spent the last two minutes just trying to verify them so that we're like okay now i can talk to you yeah and and i mean i'm not going to pick apart that particular process because i like like there were probably three or four vulnerabilities that you could pick up straight away like why was the Uh, agent how would why was the agent allowed to know what the pin number was surely there should have been a randomized challenge so somebody mm -hmm. who's listened to the call should be able to get to it so you can see how organizations have evolved these processes and people have come in and usually in response to fraud attacks and incidents, people have come in and reviewed the process and they've made them stronger. And every time they've made them stronger, they've, they've really not made them that much stronger because they're still dependent on a single piece of knowledge, uh, but they've made them less and less usable. In the book, I talk an awful lot about, and the key kind of concept for me is this trade-off between convenience and security. And if you look to, and I won't throw the graph up now but if you look to this kind of this curved trade-off um, you can see that every every nearly every security process exists somewhere on this curve uh, and what we've done historically is we've basically as we needed to get more security we've traded off for convenience every time and that is mm-hmm. the kind of the fixed knowledge-based authentication curve but what these new technologies that we talk about in the book and we'll talk about in a bit come on to is they really allow you to move the position of that curve altogether. And they're supposed to happen to have a new process in order to have a new position on the uh, the curve. You can just turn up and down the dial depending on how, how secure you need to be for the particular transaction that's taking place today. But I think mm-hmm. the, the key challenge you would lay out is that dependence on knowledge. Yeah, that was an entirely valid thing. There, were, there, was, no, there was nothing else to play with like when we started delivering yeah. contact centers remotely. Now there's all sorts of stuff. I can use the pattern of your voice to be really sure you are who you claim to be. I can use the, uh, the, the data that's associated with your phone call and your inbound phone call to be pretty certain that's originating from a device that I know to be yours. I can use the, um, the things you're asking for, the way in which you're asking for them and the types of transaction you're requesting. I can see that that's consistent with your normal behavior on this account and can, mm-hmm. can be reasonably certain that there is, there's a low, low propensity of fraud related to it. So none of, all of these technologies can be done by computers in the background, doing what they do best, following the rules, allowing humans to do what they do best, which is kind of manage the messy stuff in the middle. Uh, and I always love the fact that if you think about kind of IT security, there's so many great advances in IT security because like, Computers follow rules and they do the same thing every time. 
like so public key cryptography if you're familiar with it is an amazing kind of discipline relying on maths and it works flawlessly for every single web page every single little image you download is encrypted by this amazing kind of mathematical um cryptographic system yeah like but no human is capable of doing that yeah that's it's just not possible so we need mm -hmm. human capable systems to enable these human to human interactions yeah absolutely you know it reminds me i just recently uh had a conversation with uh Gemma colby who uh runs cx over at yell in in your neck of the woods oh, yeah, yeah. and one of the things that we talked about that you touched on was that really what what cx professionals are trying to do is replicate that experience of when you did know the person that you were talking to right kind of that uh, small town small village like everybody knows everybody and they walk into the shop and you instantly recognize yeah, them absolutely. like that's the the level of familiarity and personalization that we're trying to replicate but to do that at scale and one of the reasons that we struggle with that is exactly this that very first part we're in in many cases not doing a good job of recognizing who this is and so instead we're making them jump through these hoops some of which are not that effective absolutely and i think i mean there's there's so many other advances in technology in the in the customer experience space and voice bots and chat bots and the rest of it but that they are fundamentally constrained by this challenge yeah if they don't know who the person is and you're not that you're not sure that they are who they claim to be then all you can do is answer faq questions from a website <laughs> mm -hmm. that, that's yeah. that's not that useful to anyone um this, when when you know who they are and you're certain they are who they claim to be then you can do a whole host of other things for them in a kind of self-service fashion and enabling that personalization and i think we've spent we spent a long time chasing kind of, or we spent a long time chasing the dream of kind of solving all of our problems by deploying chat and voice bots and all these things. But we haven't kind of come back to the fundamental enabler, which is like, we need to be certain who they are and that they are who they claim to be. Um, and that, that, that for me has kind of been the gap. And that's really what I'm kind of dedicating, uh, dedicating myself to. And the other really interesting point you make is about that personalized service. And this is how I kind of, this is how I fell into this in the first place. Um, the, the situation was uh, working for um, Barclays Private Bank in the UK, and uh, we have a lot of private bankers, which, as you can imagine, are, um, as, as it says on the tin, are very well educated, very well informed, very well trained, very expensive individuals whose job is to help very wealthy people uh, manage their entire financial affairs, like plan for the long term, plan for their business exits, plan for their children and their families' futures. Um, and most of that involves investments and all this. Um, but being a bank, we also have to take care of the day-to-day -day stuff. But obviously, because the strength of that relationship between the client and their banker, the client, if the client needs fifty pounds transferred to their daughter's account for her birthday, then there's there is like they're just going to phone their banker to do it because the bankers that's that's their relationship, that's their relationship point. Yeah, as an organisation, we can't really afford to have our bankers tied up doing those kind of things. A because there were other more valuable things to them. B, they're not really very good at it um, because they don't do it very often. And they press all the wrong buttons and they don't follow the process because they think they're above it. So we had to develop uh, a set of, we had to develop a, effectively a call center experience 
um, with all of the, the rigor that goes around it, um, all the standards, processes and quotes goes around it, that felt like speaking to your private banker. And it had to be, it actually had to be better than that interaction with your private banker because customers had to actively, like we were never going to tell people, oh, you can't, you can't call your banker because we've got, they've got loads of money. We're never going to say no. Right. Um, we had to create an experience that was so much better that customers would actively choose to use it. And that's how we found ourselves in space, looking at um, network data, looking at how we figure out who's calling and get it to the same person. Stuff, stuff that you'd say, I mean, this was almost a decade ago, stuff that's starting to become more familiar now, like kind of familial routing, like we always tried to send it to the same agents, same group of agents, like we were working on kind of 10, 12 years ago. And, and voice biometrics for authentication, just like your private banker knows who you are and doesn't need you to ask you a PIN number, but they probably should because they don't know as many as they say they do. Um, <laughs> they, um, that you could speak to an agent in a call center like environment, who's again, very well trained, knew exactly who the value and could do all the stuff you need to do for you better than a banker could. Um, but we could authenticate you in the background. So it felt like that conversation, even if you hadn't spoken to that person before or you spoke to them very infrequently. And that's how I found myself in this space. And really at that point, we were kind of pushing the edges of the technology. Like, can, can you do this? And, mm-hmm. and many big names in the industry today said, no, you can't. And fortunately, we found some people who prepared to work with us and we, we developed some solutions that, that do that. And, and today those solutions are, are, are made. And for the last couple of years, they've been pretty much mainstream and they're available to anyone. Um, mm-hmm. But and, and continuing the story until you stop me so uh, and that, that's that's really I, I thought wow this is brilliant this is the problem solved and I, so i went off and did some other stuff which we'll talk about another day maybe um about how to how to help people plan how to help the, the young of today kind of plan for their futures and retirements and save money and not feel so desperate um i went off to try and do that and kind of a couple of years later it was obvious that no one else had really picked up this gauntlet that no one had really no, no other organizations had really started deploying this technology in anger and, and it became really clear that it wasn't the technology, it was about how that applies to your business and how that applies to your organization. And that's the kind of the gap I fill in the middle. Like there's some amazing, there's some amazing technology, amazing vendors out there um, who can put all the boxes and wires together to do some unbelievable stuff. Um, but then there's a lot of harried contact center managers and customer experience directors trying to put out thousands of fires who need need some translation between one and the other. It's like, well, what does that really mean yeah. to me? And how's it going to work here? Um, and, and that's what I do in the middle. And that's really what the book's about. It's about helping those people figure out where they are today, um, what their opportunities for improvement are, and what the best type of solutions for them are going to be, because it's not going to be the same for every organization. Um, and then making sure they implement it such that it delivers on that opportunity rather than um, kind of sits on the shelf as a as another another bit of technology. And whose whose contact center doesn't have lots of bits of technology in it that we thought would help would be our silver bullet, but turned out not to be. Yeah, yeah, and you do spend a lot of time in the book really breaking things down for organizations to analyze for themselves, right? Where do I fit on this continuum? How much security do I need? What is going to make most sense for me? Um, and, And help them understand really what kind of impact this is going to have for them uh, by, by kind of analyzing what their current state is and and how this will change if they implement some of these suggestions yeah. and it's, it's, i mean i mean every, every consultant you work with tells you it's going to got to do your current state assessment and before you before you figure out what your opportunities are and then you move forward from there but i think with this particular issue because idnv 
authentication security whatever you call it has has just kind of faded into the background of our call centers yeah often it's something that happens uh, a chunk of it happens in the ivr and some of it happens with agents but it's happened for so long and we do it so often that we can't even see it anymore in front of mm -hmm. us M many organizations i work with can't can't really tell me how how many people they know who they are we break it down into two steps. Identification is this kind of act of um, figuring out which which unique record in your systems this particular caller is claiming to be. We call that identification. Then authentication is the process of confirming that they are that person. So they're actually two separate and distinct processes, but often they're kind of conflated together. And you can say, like, is a social security number? Is that is that an identification question or authentication question? Is date of birth an identification or authentication question? Because they could both be used for both purposes. Mm -hmm. Is it supposed to be secret or not? So, that, but I, I digress. But what we're really trying to say is that many organizations can't even see those steps. And uh, in the book, and in fact, on our website uh, online, we have a we have a tool that we've used with we developed co-developed with real clients some real big household names that you'd all recognize um, to help them visualize what that flow looks like so we take in 100 percent of calls coming on the left of our chart and then it moves through automated identification some go on to automated authentication and some go to, to agents and we really we draw like the flow the fire hoses that go through our enterprise to figure out kind of what of about seven or eight different outcomes callers experience and every time we show that chart to people they're like when we figure out all the right numbers because usually they're in different systems all over the place and we have to make some assumptions when we show that chart to people they're like oh yeah we really should do something about this <laughs> but it's it's just faded and, and that's part of my frustration and part of the reason for talking to you and writing a book is we're just going to make more noise about this stuff like mm -hmm. it's faded yeah. into the background of our call centers it's it's too difficult to fix but I think particularly as the, as the economic environment changes and the kind of a, a, a commercial crunch appears, like inevitably kind of finance directors are going to be turning around to their calls and say customer experience and say, so uh, can I take 5% off your budget next year? How are you going to do that? <laughs> um, and, and this is just a ripe target for that. This is just a right, like, mm -hmm. uh, it's not unusual to see kind of 10 to 12% of all talk time spent on security processes. It's not unusual to see 10 to 15% of customers denied or restricted service because they can't get what they claim, get what they want in the first time. The vast majority of those turn into repeat calls because when the customer goes and finds a piece of information that has the PIN number written on them. So it's a major um, commercial opportunity to do things better even apart from the, um, the, the customer experience benefits, which I think will, will which speak for themselves and stack up over the long term as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just spoke to all the workforce professionals <laughs> out there who are like, what? You can reduce talk times and reduce repeat calls uh, doing this. And, and I think that is something that we don't think about is how much time we spend on calls going through this process that could be automated and how many repeat calls are a result of us not being able to get the process right the first time and so the customer has to call back and so it's not just about kind of that customer facing customer experience but there are operational benefits as well that then are great for customer experience as well because i don't have to spend as much time to accomplish whatever it is that I'm trying to accomplish with someone and then they can do it on that first phone call and they don't have to call back in. And just, just, just to stack even more on top of that and reasons for looking at this, just think about that agent experience again. So I, I admitted to that, like we're in a tight labor market. Like it's not easy mm -hmm. to find uh, 
high quality agents today and high quality agents, the kind of people we want working in our call centers in now and in the future, they're not kind of order takers and process followers of the past. They're kind of, they're problem solvers, they're relationship builders, they're advisors. They're the sort of people that customers can trust and empathize with. And, and those are not the sort of people who are going to be satisfied by spending 15% of their working day telling people, asking people the same set of questions that they know aren't providing any security. Um, they're not going to be very good at it. They're not going to enjoy it. And it's not going to help uh, retention. We do have some stats from one, one client that, that changed um, the authentication process that's, that, um, that did see quite a material improvement in employee satisfaction. Like even like a half percent turn in uh, employee promotion. Like if, if that saves you like one or two, if that saves you like half a percent of churn, that's a material, that's like, that's like a big number in mm-hmm. terms of the time to effectiveness and the cost of those resources. Still to this day, they're kind of the, and it's in the book as well, but I'd say that the, the tell it really telling story was like, um, the first time we deployed this technology again, back at Barclays, I was, uh, I don't live in Glasgow, but I was, I was visiting uh, and we'd, we'd put a weekend implementation live and I was leaving kind of late on a Monday night to catch a flight home. And um, somebody I'd never met before in my life, but knew who I, knew who I was and my relation to this project um, stopped me and said, it's like, oh, thanks for doing that. You've changed, you've changed my life. And I thought that was a bit extreme, but, and it probably was, uh, but like, it's no word of like, people, people don't enjoy doing these things. They don't enjoy denying service. And admittedly, like, uh, high 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 net worth financial services uh, is is like an extreme case. Yeah, there's a lot of security. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of risk, uh, and there's a lot of people having problems with the security process because of all those things. So it, it is at the extreme. So that's why those kind of organisations, and you'll see the headlines kind of from a couple of years ago, uh, and similar in the US, did have implemented this kind of technology. But today, it's accessible to everyone. And um, mm-hmm. whilst these problems are, and but at a, at a cost point, that's like an order of magnitude lower than what I paid for it a decade ago. Um, so the, the reasons for doing it, um, and, and everyone I think looked at this kind of stuff almost a decade ago and said, oh, do you know what? It's just too expensive. It's just too complex. I think you need to look again. I think people need to look again with the emergence of um, contact center contact center with service providers, integration is cheaper than ever. The proliferation of vendors in this space, the price point is like an order of magnitude lower than, than what it used to be. In many cases, you pay as you go. So if you don't get benefits, mm-hmm. you don't pay for anything. So um, I really urge people to, to, to start start thinking again. And if you want to even vaguely interested in starting that, then there's a, there's a great book uh, <laughs> that you can get. And if you go to, and I have to do my plug now, if I'm afraid. So if you go to unlockedcallcenter.com, yeah, then you can get the first chapter free. So uh, that'll give you a bit of a sample. And if you like it, then obviously it's available in all of the usual bookshops. Yeah. And we'll definitely uh, put that link in the, the liner notes. One of the things that I wanted to talk about, because and you mentioned this in the book, right? Security has traditionally been about securing the front door. And, and we're starting to move away from that in, in all kinds of IT security. But I see us doing security wrong in a lot of different ways. Um, and this isn't really part of the book, but one of the things that I got to thinking about as I was reading your book is it's not just the authentication of the customer that we often are doing wrong or doing in a way that is not very friendly. It's the authentication of the agent's access to 
information. (laughs) And so uh, I know I I just used a system yesterday uh, that requires multi-factor authentication. And uh, this is a system that uh, our frontline agents use every day. And I have to get a text message to my phone. I have to enter a code. And then that system times out like really quickly. Like if you're not active in it, it times out within like 15 minutes and you have to do it all again. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how we could also improve the agent experience using similar um, ways of ensuring that the right people are accessing the right things. Yeah, it is a great question. And, and absolutely, some of the same technology can be brought to bear on that problem. I guess I, I lead with the customer because like once we've done it for the customer, like it's easy to do it for the, for the employee as well. I think what you, what you know, like you know that the majority of these kind of MFA type solutions, they, they were designed for people sitting at desks in corporate headquarters. Yeah. They're not designed for our, for our call and contact centers um, because uh, it's the same with um, pins and passwords. They're designed for online where you've got keyboards and things in front of you. But we've got this unique property and we're using it right now, our voices, <laughs> um, right. that our, our agents are using their content center all the time, yeah? So mm-hmm. I'm already recording their calls. I already know that it was definitely them on there. All it takes is a little bit more analysis of that audio to be pretty to be pretty certain that that is uh, agent 18957 or whatever, however system we're going to use to do that. And I can keep that session. I can maintain that session as long as that user is speaking. And even if I kind of move that session to a kind of transitory locked state, you know, your computer locks out, you need to press enter your password again. The moment they start talking again, I can I can authenticate them again. Mm-hmm. And I think this even, this even goes beyond that. If you think about the kind of outsourcing and compliance environment we're in at the moment, in some industries, it's really, really important, particularly if I've outsourced my service, that I'm confident as the, as the bill payer that my service is being delivered by people that I know to be competent to deliver that service, not by um, how, whoever has been kind of conned into doing the kind of the, the, the late shift just to cover for me because no one ever listens to these calls and they're really <laughs> easy. Um, so it, from a compliance and outsourcing perspective as well, I also see these, these type of solutions being really valuable from there, not just from kind of keeping employees um, logged in. So there are definitely scope for that. Um, there are challenges in terms of uh, privacy legislation and, uh, and consent uh, that everyone shouldn't, shouldn't have to provide a biometric data unless you, unless you agree to do that. But there, there are ways of incentivizing that. And most people, most people are not malicious. Most people are, and if you make it easy for mm-hmm. them, they're going to sign up. And that's been our experience with customers and it's been our experience with employees. Like if, if there's something in it for them and it's going to make their lives easier, people are like, well, yep, I'm there. <laughs> Yes, yes, absolutely. So the the one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, so, you know, you talk really about uh, three different pillars, right? So one of is, is behavior, right? Is this expected behavior for this particular customer? The other is uh, network authentication and detection, right? Understanding kind of how this communication channel is is coming to you. And then the third is voice. As we see AI becoming better and better at impersonating voice, do you see the potential of voice being diminished because 
it becomes less useful as a biometric? So that's that's a really good question, and we should we should we should drill down on that. That is one of the kind of the key kind of um, challenges that we get get a lot in these conversations. So I think first of all, you have to acknowledge that no security method is ever perfect, and that's why we have multi-factor authentication. That said, though, the vast majority of interactions that take place in an organization are, are pretty low risk. There's very little information being exchanged. There's very few transactions taking place. So if we accept that most interactions are low risk and that voice biometrics provides us a very high confidence uh, means of authentication, then it, it, is, it could be said that it is true. It is vulnerable to impersonation attacks. Now, that the most obvious impersonation attack is like just getting a recording. Uh, and therefore, we don't tend to recommend um, the kind of the some of the more text dependent solutions that you see see today, because they, whilst there are means of detection available to figure out whether recordings recordings are there, I think ultimately that's where uh, imposters where where fraudsters are probably fo focus their efforts. But if we looked at the kind of the freer speech uh, text independent forms of authentication, then um, in order to create to recreate a synthetic voice, just to make a human sounding like conversation requires usually kind of 20 to 30 minutes of captured audio, usually requires um, a, um, a specific script to be read so that all the right phenomes are presented so that the model can crunch it. And even then, you think about the origin of these models, they're, they're really driven by the needs of the entertainment industry um, to create something that's human, that, that sounds alike to a human. And, and in actual fact, like humans are very easy to trick. <laughs> like there yeah. are, like you, you and I, like you, you, we think we recognize each other by our voices, but in practice, we're recognize we're only using kind of like five, ten percent of the features that are available in that voice. Um, whereas our our uh, computer systems, our biometric authentication systems, are using hundred percent of those factors available to us. Um, mm -hmm. So their their ability to discern that difference is is significantly greater. So most AI, most deep fake AI systems are kind of optimized to sound like them, but not to actually be mathematically similar. And then there's a certain element of repetition and patterns that's introduced by the technology in its own right. Um, and also, which, which can be detected separately, even if even even if the voice kind of is good enough to sound like the real person to a computer, these artifacts that left behind can get detected. Obviously, the kind of the next iteration then says, well, why why can't people start taking those away? And in, in practice, it's starting to require quite a serious uh, capability to build these models. Unfortunately, we've seen um, in the last couple of months, in fact, uh, in fact, it was only uh, only the other week, I think, that that Microsoft put all of this technology that has uh, has available behind an ethics barrier. Uh, mm -hmm. Google's technology like this is is all like you have to sign an ethics code of compliance um, before you can set up a, um, a synthetic voice um, with Microsoft today. You need to um, have the person who's say whose voice you're going to use stay a statement says i give permission for xyz companies to create a synthetic voice in my name and that and in practice most of that is driven by um voiceover artists being really worried about their future income streams um but <laughs> but it the same the same applies in many in the same applies in the kind of security situation obviously um in the long term there are um there are risks we've seen some stories in the in the media that suggest that a um a, uh, a CEO of a UK subsidiary of a German firm was defrauded in what we call this kind of CEO type fraud by somebody who sounded like his German boss. Um, but there's no, there's no recordings actually available of this to know whether it was um, 
just someone who sounded a bit German or whether it was a, with a fake <laughs> available. And there was no biometric technology run on that call. So it, it's mm-hmm. clear that fraud, it's clear that if they're not, then soon they will, fraudsters will try this kind of technology. I think it's most likely to be used and exploited in that kind of uh, um, CEO type invoice type fraud kind of scenarios rather than it is in our kind of large scale business to consumer um, environments. That, that said though, our kind of standing advice remains like certainly for people who, who are in the public domain, who for whom um, a lot of audio may be available for them in the public domain, then it would be, it would make sense, even if there, if even if there's no evidence of it being exploited for them to be protected by, or their most risky transactions to be protected by multiple factors, which is just mm. good security practice anyway. So um, yeah, I think like nothing, nothing's perfect. Nothing's gonna, the fraudsters will uh, move on to, to tackle things, but this is a hard, hard problem for them to solve. There are still billions of people who have their social security number and password one, two, three as their login to their <laughs> bank account. Like this, this is not, this is not worth their effort right now. Uh, right. So uh, I, I don't expect to see, to see it, see it being a major problem for the foreseeable future. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's we, not the low hanging fruit. Yeah. It, 100% <laughs> is not. We, we always talk. I, I, I always like back, back to my economics, like fraudsters and imposters, like they're economically, they're, they're probably more economically rational than your average customer. Yeah. They will um, deploy the amount of effort required to gain the rewards and they will prioritize the effort for the kind of the minimum amount of effort for the greatest amount of rewards. And quite frankly, like trying to defeat a voice biometric system is a ton of work for next to no chance of success and therefore reward. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff out there that they, that they will go to. Invariably, as that stuff gets, security gets improved there, then we can might see the pendulum swing the other way. It's just the way we've seen, like, remember when internet banking and mobile apps first appeared, like the fraudsters were on those like anything because they were just full of holes. There were so many vulnerabilities. <laughs> and the security people have got really good at covering those vulnerabilities. So fraudsters have switched back to call centers and face-to-face interactions, if not to actually um, steal money there, or but at least to gain information necessary to compromise other channels where features and things are available to them. So yeah, so they are they are almost perfectly economically rational. So we, we, our job is to maintain the walls high enough um, rather than to ever, so that they don't bother to climb them rather than to make them impossible to climb. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's not a great analogy, but we'll go with that. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think it gets your point across. I I really do. So uh, if you are interested, if, if everything that we just talked about for the most part went over your head and you were like, I think what they're talking about is important and I should learn more, but I really didn't understand that. Uh, You're available to help people navigate uh, some of these uh, security things. They can obviously go to your website. They can hit you up on LinkedIn. Is there anything else that, that they should be aware of? No, I think, I mean, so, so the book's website is unlockyourcallcenter.com. That's almost certainly the best place to start as a kind of free, the first chapter, the first chapter really is kind of the primer chapter. So you can get that for mm-hmm. free there. So I, I, I would start there. And if what, what we're saying in that resonates, then there's, there's a book available. Uh, it's on Kindle. I think it goes on discount every now and then it's on Kindle unlimited uh, and the paperback versions that that's probably where I'd, I'd start. But if you need any help navigating that, then yeah, just, just, just ask. Like, 
100% it is my mission to get rid of ridiculous, pointless, frustrating, time-consuming, insecure security processes. Like, I, I don't necessarily, I, I have a number of clients, so uh, I'm fortunate to have, have the luxury of being able to start genuinely, like, if you, if you think you've got a problem that I might be able to help with, or you just need like five minutes points in the right direction, then, then pick up the phone or, or send me an email because like that, that literally that's like, that's what I consider to be successful. My, my aspiration is to have a, a billion better conversations by um, the end of the, um, well, in three years, four years time. Yeah. So we're, we're up to half a million now, but uh, yeah, a billion better conversations is kind of where I'm going. And if we can go to 2 billion, then that'd be even better. So that that's, I think for me, that's really the important thing. Like, knowledge-based authentication it's day day has come whether some of these advanced technologies are right for you or not uh how you buy them or not is is kind of a question you need to answer but if you're still asking people their social security number uh or their date of birth or their mother's maiden name then then you are kidding yourselves that that is providing any security and you have this enormous opportunity to do better for your customers and your agents and for your firm's bottom line so it's worth having a think about and the tools yeah. that you'll see on that website uh, and in the book are kind of great places to start. Um, but don't be afraid to pick up the phone either. When you achieve this goal, can you work on captures next? Well, there's a, we are digressing. <laughs> there is some interesting technology coming in that space. So you might've seen in, uh, in, uh, we had a, before recording started, we had a Mac versus Windows debate. And in the next release we of Mac OS, we'll see some new technology that makes uh, captures redundant in many situations. Yeah, I am I am uh, going to apologize right now for all of the fine photographers out there that are uh, photographing stoplights and sidewalks and city streets because you'll be out of business when the captures end. But I also really, really am ready for that day when I don't have to tick five boxes that have a city street in them. That that will you know, make you me know happy. That's just about, you know that's just training the model, don't you? You know that's just training the AI model. <laughs> yes. Yes. yes, it is. And I'm ready for it to be over. So You can stop being the mechanical Turk in the system. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, it has been great talking to you. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having Thank me. You. Thank you so much for joining.